at the risk of um, causing embarrassment, which I do not want to do. However, there are certain things that have to be done, and um, we have to give a massive welcome to Robert's son, Naomi's husband, who is here in England. Would you like to? Great to have you here. Great to have you here. It's just so, so, so fantastic to have you here and to see you here as a couple after all those months of uh, praying and just see God bringing you guys together. It's fantastic. We're so thrilled to have you here. So um, just receive all our love and warmth and um, hopefully you won't be overwhelmed, uh, but maybe you'll be a little bit and that's not such a bad thing um, by, by the guys at Revelation Church, but we're so thrilled to have you here and we're so glad that you guys can really really start in earnest your married life together. That's great news. That's fantastic. So, big thank you to Jesus there. Um, it's, yeah, it's just great. Okay, right, where are we going? We're doing a series on 1 Peter. We're going to do three more weeks on 1 Peter. Um, after that, we have a guest speaker here, and we will kick off a brand new series on things like healing, deliverance, etc., coming out of that. Okay, so that's where we're going. So um, the next three on 1 Peter we're going to look today, particularly at, how can I sum it up in a concise way? Responding in a godly way to horrible authority figures. (laughs) So that's going to be fun. And um, (laughs) if one goes, oh, I'm really feeling inspired now. Yeah, it may not be the most... um, um, exciting but very practical. Then we're going to look at wives and husbands the following week, which please, if you're not married, please still come to, because you may be married one day. And um, it's good to begin to build up a a kind of a store of teaching and sound doctrine on um, godly view of marriage. And then on the final week, we will probably, I think we will look at the whole thing of humility, spiritual warfare. And how those things come together. So that's where we're going. Um, now you might think, well, hold on a minute. There's just there's loads more. There's loads more in one Peter than that. Why are we bringing it to an end? Partly because the stuff we're looking at today about suffering um, under um, harsh authority figures actually takes up a lot of the rest of the book in various ways. So we're going to try and cover that today. Okay. So you with me? This is relevant. If you're here and you're very young, this is relevant because you'll have horrible teachers. Yeah. You need to work out how to be godly in response to. If you're here and you're very old, there'll still be people that you are under authority to in some ways. All of us are in relationships with authority figures. And I, th- I think I can say we, are, we probably live in the most anti-authoritarian age the world has ever known. I think that's honest. Um, after Hitler's gas chambers and then Stalin's work camps, Pol Pot's killing fields, Saddam's mass graves, and then Bush and Blair's weapons of mass deception. I think, I think what has happened globally is that there's, a, there's been a real shift in terms of trust in authority, and, the, and especially in the West, I would say, our default is suspicion. Okay, Our starting point is, I won't trust you, but if, but if you show yourself trustworthy, I will, rather than, I will trust you, and then if you show yourself untrustworthy, I won't. And I think not only that, also if you look at other um, authority figures, parents and um, teachers and carers, you, sometimes the stories you read in the papers are just heartbreaking. And this children's home in Jersey, 
We read about where it seems like for decades the carers were allowed to not just abuse children but kill them. And no one seemed to notice until recently. And you think, what does that do in those that survive that? How, you know, how do you relate to those that you're supposed to trust and that you're supposed to be under when you've been treated like that? Um, many people live in, live in really the wake of um, parental abuse. And not only that, spiritual leaders, pastors and priests, you know, read about fairly high-ranking, I don't know, vicar or whatever in Wales recently, discovered 55,000 images of child porn on his computer. You think, what's going on? And, and corruption, even in church leaders. And, and what can happen is every story you read and thing you hear, in your mind you can build another brick in the wall which basically, says, which basically makes a divide between you and authority figures. You say, I'm not trusting, I'm, not, I'm just, I'm going to make myself the final point of accountability. And it's understandable and I can understand why people do it. So I sympathise. However, is it godly? No. <laughs> because in all of that, God provides authority so that life can be orderly. God, remember we looked last week at the police and how some people have bad experiences with the police in various different ways. Even people in this room, bad experience. You meet, I mean, <laughs> I remember a situation a few months back. We had a picnic in Regent's Park. I came back. Very funny story. Came back with the kids. Now my kids at the moment, bless them, they're not sure on the difference between jail and hell. They, they haven't got it. So we, you just, you know, as life goes on, you teach various things and so they think police send you to hell at the moment. We're trying to help them through it. We're trying it, but they don't, they don't get it. I think it's the same thing. So anyway, so you can imagine, you're getting into you know, the mindset. So we come back from the picnic, come, come to, our, up to, to our car. Now we're parked on a um, single yellow line in, on a Sunday afternoon. Um, the restrictions were Monday to Saturday, so all is good. There's a police van over the other side of the road, um, full of policemen. So I come back to the car. I've got the two, I think the two oldest with me, I think, uh, Daisy and Levi. And I think, I think these policemen, they seem to be looking at me. I think, I'm not a bit paranoid, you know, surely not. Start unlocking the car, and then suddenly something come out and start walking over. Is this your car? So I said, yeah, it's my car. I said, um, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to, it was a couple of months back now, I'm trying to think how the conversation went. So, but it's something like this. So, um, you know, did you uh, think it through before you parked here, sir? No, that's sweet. That's teaching these sort of times. You think it through before you parked here, sir? I said that. Uh, <laughs> I said that. Uh, I said, well, I said, I said uh, have, I done, have I done something wrong? Uh, well, it's not a very good place to park, is it? And I'm thinking, I don't know what to say now, because I don't want to, the worst thing to do is to get into an argument with a policeman. It's just, a, don't do it. You won't win. And yet, I'm thinking, I'm not sure I've done something wrong. So it's kind of, it's that tricky moment, you know. And, uh, and then I asked another question, and, and the look he gave me, I thought, okay, I'm going to just leave it. And then they started taking all my details. And at this point, the kids are thinking, you know, we're off to hell. <laughs> <laughs> trying to sort of smile at the kids. It's, all, it's fine. So they took my details, checked the cars, mine, and all of that. This other police, and then a slightly more reasonable looking one came along. I said, have I done something wrong? Is this illegally parked? He said, no, sir. I said, so what's the problem? He said, well, it's just not a, very, not a very clever place to park. And I thought, I don't get this. He said, considering what happened this afternoon, sir. I said, uh, what happened this afternoon? He said, don't you worry about that, sir. <laughs> Get this conversation. And you can just, you, you can want to pull your hair out because you think, I, I really want to respect you, but 
but I don't know, do you know, I don't know how to. And uh, so in the end, they just shut up. That's what I did. And I think that's probably the best thing. And interesting, Peter says sometimes that's the, the best thing to do. But I think, I think we, we need wisdom in how we respond. Because if, if someone in authority over you is wise and good, it's, it's, it's a blessing to be under their authority, isn't it? You know, who, we can all remember good teachers. Yeah, fantastic. Oh, amazing teachers. But then there's those that aren't good. And how do you respond? How do you, how do you glorify Christ in the way that you respond? Let's read the passage today. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. While he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer's of your souls. Now, before we go on, we're just going to tackle the tricky subject of slavery. When Peter says servants, he's talking about slaves. Okay, so we just need to just look at that for a minute because all kinds of things come into my mind. Hold on, what's Peter saying? Slaves be subject to your masters. Surely you should say, you know, start a, start a civil rights movement. Do you see what I mean? It's, uh, you know, you think, well, what's going on there? Let me just um, explain about slavery in the first century. Very, very different, for example, um, from the whole kind of um, African. Slavery that went on from the um, 16th century, you know, um, trafficking millions of Africans, um, separating them from their families, uprooting them over to the Caribbean and America. Completely different concept. You need to understand that if you're going to understand what Peter is saying here. It's reckoned in the first century in the cities, one in three people were slaves. One in three. And it wasn't a bad deal. There were plenty worse things you could be than a slave. Slavery was often a preferable option to scraping around looking for casual labour. It's often hard to find work in those days, so slavery was guaranteed work. If you were a slave, you would have a home, you'd often have a good education, a good job, maybe a doctor, lawyer, sea captain, you'd be in charge of a household. It was, a, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was nothing like um, what we think of when we think of slavery. Most slaves were slaves because they were born... Um, into slavery. They were, just, they were, they were uh, children of slaves, so they were born slaves. But often, by the time they were 30, they would purchase their freedom um, if they wanted to. You know, There's the famous thing with the Hebrews. If they liked being a slave of a certain master, then they would say after a certain time, pierce, pierce my ear. Yes, yeah, so they put their ear up against the wood, and then someone would pierce their ear, and it was their way of saying, I want to be your slave forever, because they just loved belonging to this person. Now, I'm not saying slavery is ideal. All I'm saying is it's very different from how we tend to think of it in these days. Um, we need to differentiate between that and the horrors of what happened um, in particularly West Africa um, over the last few centuries. But let's not be idealistic because Peter is actually talking about how to respond to masters that are horrible and unjust. So it's not everything was hunky-dory. What's he saying? He says this. He says these things which, to be honest with you, they're very countercultural, especially for Westerners. We think, oh, what's he saying? If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, 
This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his steps. Does this mean you're under obligation? Now let's, before we, sorry, before we go any further, how do we respond this to us? None of us are slaves and masters, bosses. Okay? It's about bosses, or it's about teachers, or it's about lecturers, professors. It's about anyone that is in authority over you. So we bring it into our own situation, and it's relevant now, yeah? Everyone starts going, <laughs> faces change, okay? Because this is relevant now. Um, does this mean you're under obligation to let yourself be manipulated and attacked at will? No. There were times when the religious authorities um, plotted against Jesus and stuff, and he didn't just kind of let it happen. There were times when he deliberately avoided them. There was a time when a crowd took him to the top of a hill to throw him off, and he walked through the middle of them. So it's not that you just allow yourself to be completely you know, manipulated, downtrodden, and abused at will. Absolutely not. However, there was the time where Jesus, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. There was that time where he knew it was, it was now right, it was God's will, that he didn't protest. That he kept mindful of God and he maintained his absolute dignity. There was nothing fear, afraid about him, but he let what happened, happen. Does it mean you're never to stand up for yourself? No. When Paul was wrongly arrested in Philippi, he was beaten and put into prison. And then it's the famous story when him and Silas were praising God and God caused this supernatural earthquake, the chains fell off. And then um, the next morning, the authorities say, let him go. And Paul says this, hold on a minute. You've, you've arrested and beaten me, a Roman citizen, with no trial, and now you want to let me go quietly. No way. You come down here, yeah, and let's make a public show of this. So the authorities have to come down and apologise publicly, and then they went. So it's not that you just it's not that you're never able to stand up for yourself or stand up for your rights. Not so. So what does it mean? It means this there will be times at work or at school or in college or at uni where you do what is right and you get nailed for it. You do the godly thing and you get nailed for it. Or you do what's right and you get overlooked. Or you do what's right and you get persecuted. Or you do what's right and you get wrongly accused. And there'll be particular teachers, professors, bosses, employers who seem to have it in for you because you are righteous. If you're a Christian, because you make a stand for Jesus, because you won't do the underhand thing, because you won't do the, do the immoral thing, there'll be those who have it in for you because of that. And the right response will be to just carry on, mindful of God, full of peace and subjected to them. There'll be times where that is the right thing to do. And everything in you cries out, no! Because, let's be honest, there's not many things that are harder to take than someone wrongly accusing you. Yeah? Don't we just rise up and want to vindicate ourselves straight away, or is it just me? Don't you want to get the last word in and make sure you know you've, oh, this is what happened. Sometimes it's not the right thing. Sometimes the right thing is you just go, okay, I believe God's going to vindicate me here. I believe God's going to vindicate me. And I'm not going to do it. Sometimes that, that's what Peter's saying here. Sometimes that's the right thing. Now it's tricky because I'm not saying it's always the right thing because I think there are times we see it biblically where you have to... I think the interesting thing is it's working out. Sometimes you have to say something because you're right, full of righteous anger. Sometimes you think it's righteous anger but it's not. Do you know how you know? 
I'll tell you how you know. This is a massive one. If something happens to you at work and your boss or at school and your teacher really comes down on you and you find yourself and you think, this is righteous anger, I want to ask you a question. When that's happened to someone else in the workplace or the school and not you, have you felt the same way? Because if you felt the same way when it's happened to someone else, it's probably righteous anger. If actually it's because it's you, it's probably not. It's probably fleshly anger. And the Bible says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It never does. It never does. In domestic relationships, when you lash out, it never produces the righteousness of God. It doesn't. Don't, I don't know about you, I always regret it. I always regret speaking in anger. Yeah? Always. Even Jesus, when he turned over the tables in the temple, noticed something very important. Before he did that, he went and he made a whip. Now some people might have said, well that means he's really angry. No, because you can't make a whip if you're really madly losing your temper. You'll be... Yeah? Just stupid thing, throw it away, you know, I'll just charge in. You've got to be, you've got to remain some semblance of calm to be able to put something like that together. Jesus didn't lose his temper. It was righteous anger. Yeah? Didn't lose his temper. He wasn't being exploited. He saw others being exploited in the temple. That's how you know if it's righteous anger. Are you as angry for the others as you are for yourself? Huge, huge thing for us. So responding godly in the workplace is, uh, I want to just square with you, you can't just do this by trying your best. You can't just do it by trying your best. Being godly for that teacher when everyone else hates him. You can't just do that by doing your best. It's miraculous. It's utterly miraculous to be able to do that. It's a supernatural thing, so how do we do it? I'm going to give you two lessons, first of all, on how to live a godly life when faced with unjust authority figures. The first thing is this, and I'm going to ask you this question. For some of you, you're going to say, obvious, but I want to ask it anyway. Are you born again? Are you born again? This is, a, this is the most important question anybody will ever ask you. And I even, even for those of you that would say, clearly, yeah, I just want you to ask yourself again, because it's good. Are you born again? It sounds obvious, but it's vital. You need to have a clear answer on this. You can't be vague on it. If you think, well, uh, you know, maybe I think so, probably not. You might be, but you're probably not. It's very important. Has God created a new heart in you as you've put your faith in Jesus? Has he done that? Have you experienced that? Whether you were three or 33, have you experienced that miracle where God makes you what you weren't? The Bible calls it, makes you a new creation. Do you know that? It could be that you can point to a particular moment. It could be that it's so early you can't even remember, but you know, yeah, Jesus lives in me. I know it. I know that who I am, this desire to love God and to pray, that's not a natural desire. You can see the evidence, the fruit of it. Are you born again? Or is your Christianity just a tradition or a title or something written on your birth certificate, Christian? Because if that's the case, you're not a Christian. No one is born a Christian. No one. You can be born in a Christian family, but you can't be born a Christian. The only way you get to become one of God's children is through adoption. God adopts you. None of us are born his children. You have to be born again. Jesus himself said it. I'm speaking on his authority. He said no one can enter the kingdom unless they are born 
again. This is more than just inheriting a religion, inheriting a tradition. It's where God works on you miraculously, and as you put your trust in Jesus, he makes you a brand new person. It could be very dramatic, it could be very quiet, but nevertheless, God is at work and a miracle takes place. And in response to that, you get baptised. You go under the water, signifying your death to your old life and your burial with Jesus. And you come out, signifying you've been raised to life with Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. That's what it means to be born, to be born again of God. Are you? Have you known this? It's the only logical response to the fact that he gave himself to you, to give yourself to him. It's the only logical response. He utterly gave himself on the cross for you. He poured out his life for you, his blood, rose again for you. The only response surely can be to give ourselves to him, to trust ourselves entirely on him, to lean our whole weight on him. It's the cornerstone, yeah? We're living stones, we're leaning our weight on him. It's vital to know it, because if you're born again, you're not what you were, you're a walking miracle. Amen? Amen. This is so important... Because sometimes people try to live out the Christian life without giving enough thought to what they are now, what God has made them. And you can so go ahead in terms of how you want to live and what you want to be like, but without paying due attention to, well, what am I? Because what you do comes out of what you are, doesn't it? Always. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what you speak comes out of what you are. I find that a terribly sobering thing, you know. Sometimes I find certain jokes coming out in a repeated way and then you've done this, and you feel the Holy Spirit just go, wait. And you think, what's in there? And you start to use your thing, justify it, first 10 seconds, yeah? Oh, yeah. This is because of this. I was just. And then, you know, and you say, okay, you know, busted. And uh, hands up. And then you think, oh, yeah, there's a bit of that in my heart. You know, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, you see, the Bible says that when you're born again, God takes out your heart of stone, but it's in a heart of flesh. Brand new. Your deepest desire is to love Him. Your deepest desire. If you desire to please Jesus, you're born again. If you've got a desire in your heart to please Jesus, you are born again. You weren't born with that. (laughs) You may have been born with a spiritual hunger, but to just love Jesus and know him better, that is evidence of God working a miracle in your heart. And it's a wonderful thing. I never tire of it, and nor should you. You should never tire of it. That you wake up in the morning and you want to love Jesus some more, that is a miracle. That is God at work. You should give him thanks for even that. Isn't it wonderful? We don't have to kind of plug ourselves into a machine every morning. Do you know what I mean? It kind of just makes us want to, you know, makes us want to love God again. We just, there's a new heart in us. Hallelujah. And he's never going to go. And it's never going to be taken out. And God's never going to just, oh, I'm fed up with you now. Take it out and put the stony one back in. No. No. You can get hard. You can get hard. But it's really just the casing over the heart of flesh. It's not a heart of stone. You can get a hard casing around it. If you let yourself get hard. But underneath it, there's still that new heart. You're born again. Once you're born again, you're born again. You can't unmake what God's done. It's wonderful, beautiful doctrine. It's a miracle. If you're not born again, you need to get born again. It's as simple as that. If you want to, if you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to know sin's forgiven, if you want to know reconciliation with God, you must be born again. It's an imperative. You must be born again. There's no other route. Jesus said, I am the way. The truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You need to be born again. I say that with gentleness, with grace, with love. Don't say it in a coercive way. No one can coerce or pressurise anyone into it. But I say it to you from the heart of God. And I plead with you, please do.
It's a wonderful thing. I feel that God wants to say to some people here today, He just wants you to know He wants to be your shepherd. And some people fear the Lordship of Christ. Jesus wants to be my Lord. What does that mean? It means He wants to be your shepherd. And a shepherd, biblically, beautiful picture. See, in our day, the shepherd kind of, sort of stands around, he's got his dog there, you know, whistling and doing different whistles. That's not really a biblical picture of what Jesus wants to do for you. In those days, the shepherd would go in front and he would lead the way. And it was absolute dedication to the flock, to the extent that if a lion or a bear or a wolf would come and try and devour the flock, the shepherd would take it out. I mean, absolute devotion. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I'm not like a hired hand, like a hired servant who comes in, looks after the sheep, wolf's coming, tea break. Yeah? I'm not like that. Yeah? He said, I am the good shepherd. He lays his life down for the sheep. And I just feel that for some of you today, he wants you to know he's got compassion for you. He sees that you're like a sheep without a shepherd. You don't know which way to turn. There's anxieties and stuff. Listen, he wants, you, he wants to be your shepherd. What will it mean for, for your part? It means letting him be your shepherd. Letting him be in charge. Giving him your, giving him your so I'm going to follow you. I'm not going to do it my way anymore. And there's opportunity every Sunday to do that. In fact, when we take bread and wine later, do you want Jesus to be your shepherd? You may have never done that before. Eat the bread. Drink the wine. Say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to just lay my life down. and I want, I want to know this amazing free gift of eternal life. I want to be baptised and start a new life with you. For those of you that are born again, a new creation in Christ, how do you then, what's the second step, the final key to responding in a godly way? Well, it says it in here, be mindful of God. Because you can be a Christian and not be mindful of God. Did you know that? You can be a Christian and yet be mindful of everything else. <laughs> Circumstances, anxieties, fears, worries, angers, bitternesses that you're harbouring. You can be mindful of all kinds of things. Revenge. It's amazing, isn't it, when someone wrongs you, how quickly you can get into that way of thinking. You know, little plans and schemes, you catch yourself. Peter says, be mindful of God when you're suffering. Be mindful. So often our blood starts to boil when we get offended and we cloud over. Peter says, no, no, no. Listen, be mindful of God. This is a huge thing. It's a massive, it's a discipline, to be honest. It's a discipline. When we are undeservedly wrong, there are powers and forces in us that are incredibly strong and they rise up with strong intent to put things right. To be mindful of God involves looking at Jesus. How did he respond when he was wronged by evil people? Well, there was, Peter, Peter points to the crucifixion and he says he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, he didn't open his mouth. And there's sometimes, there's just a lot of strength, funnily enough. There's a, lot, there's a bizarre strength in not vindicating yourself. In not justifying yourself. In not always arguing your corner. But you know, sometimes you just say, I'm going to leave that. I'm going to just leave it. Let the battle rage. Let the accusations come. I'm going to leave it. And I'm going to entrust myself to Jesus. And I believe very often that opens the door for God to come and act on your behalf and do wonderful things. When it says be mindful of God, you need to be mindful of who he is. He, he is the one who, it's very simple for him to come into a situation like that and write things for you. It's very simple for him to remove people. I have a friend of mine, uh, when I first became a Christian, great guy, Jamaican guy, um, just an amazing Christian, wonderful Christian. Um, used to be a boxer, huge. I mean, just ridiculously strong. I remember playing some kind of crazy game in a swimming pool with him. So, so I think it was some sort of water thing with a ball. And I felt like a kid. I was 18. 
like a kid. His hands were like, just huge. He used to work on a building site and he had this foreman who was very racist. And uh, it got to the point where he just said, God, you, you, you just need to remove this guy. Or I don't think I can do this anymore. He just got to the point. You know, sometimes things get to a point. He <laughs> said, so, God, I just, God just removed him. Just removed him. He wasn't there anymore. And I think sometimes we, we don't give God the credit he deserves when it comes to these sort of situations, you know? We've got our theology, yeah, God is able, yeah, we've got, yeah. But no, bring it in. Make, bring it into your situation. It's so important. I think applied, I think unapplied theology, truth about God that you don't actually apply, is maybe more dangerous than having no theology. You know, I think you need to have applied theology, apply. This, God, this, is, this is what God is like, so it means this when I'm at school. Right? It means, oh, he's going to be with me. That means I mustn't be scared. That, so it's, it's, and I tell you, it's a battle. Because sometimes the circumstances, it make it look like the opposite. But no, be mindful of God. Let your mind be filled with God. It's not easy, guys. But the Christian life isn't easy, is it? But I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Be mindful of who we serve. He is awesome. He is very, very awesome. Just by way of wrapping up, God reminded me last night as I was preparing of um, King David. Now, King David was a guy who, he could fight. He loved God. Good-looking guy. He had it all going for him. And he was serving under King Saul, who King Saul basically became a paranoid wreck a few years into his reign as king. Majorly paranoid. Majorly messed up. And he decided he hated David and tried to, kept trying to kill him. And he would chase David around the wilderness. He would literally spend most of it. I mean, his main kind of po- policy during his reign was kill David. I mean, you know, he was just, he hated him. And he was, he was a, it was a kind of insane, kind of demonic thing. How did David respond? There was one moment where Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. And it was the cave where David and his men were hiding. It's a famous story, but please, even if you know it, come, come back there again. Because David's men are saying this to David. God has given him into your hand. He says, God, God has given him into your hand. But David understood about authority. He understood, no, this is God's anointed. God anointed him as king. He's a paranoid wreck. He's violent and he hates me. But he's God's anointed. Your boss is God's anointed in your workplace. Sorry. (laughs) Your teachers are God's anointed in that setting. Flawed, yes. But God's anointed. And so David, he says, oh, I won't do that. He says, what I'll do is, I'll just cut a bit of his cloak off. You might think it sounds weird. Why? Well, bear with me. Saul finishes going to the toilet, comes out of the cave, walks a little bit further. David comes out and says, I don't know, he didn't, he, he, he says, he says, he says, he says, oh, King, it's me. Saul turns around and says, is that you, David? He says, yeah. He says, I'm just, he says, why are you, why are you chasing me? I'm just a, you know, I'm just a dead dog. I'm just, a, I'm just like a flea. And he's just this humility. And he says, but by the way, look, you know, I could have, could have killed you. Now, why did David go out and show him the cloak? Why did he go into I'll tell you why, because as soon as he cut the cloak, his conscience, his conscience troubled him, right? And he realised he'd done something wrong. Because he cut the cloak of the Lord's anointed. His friends are saying, kill him, finish him. He cut the cloak, and then his conscience is struck. What is that? I'll tell you what it is. It's sensitivity to God's truth. And it's it's not easy to live with a sensitive conscience. Not easy. I'll finish with one story and then we'll wrap it up. <laughs> I don't think I've told this. No, I haven't told this. No. It happened last Saturday. Went to a wedding. 
came back with Hazel and Lena and uh, on the train. Um, Come to Finsbury Park. Hazel gets off with a, a ween. Lena stays on to King's Cross with me because Lena's going on to a hen night. So me and Lena are on the train to King's Cross. Lena gets a call from Hazel. I haven't got my keys. Lena's got the keys. I said, Lena, no problem. I'll get the train back to Finsbury Park with the keys and I can get a 29 home. You go on to your hen night. She says, you sure? I says, of course I. So we get the train to King's Cross. Get to King's Cross. So my ticket takes me to King's Cross, right? So I'm at, King- <laughs> I'm at King's Cross Station. I think, right, now I need to just get a train, jump on the train back up to Finsbury Park with these keys. It's not a big deal about getting another ticket because I've basically, I've, I've not done anything. I've just, it's just, a, you know, it's kind of less. It's just going back. It's a shorter distance, no problem. So, um... I go up to one of these officials, I say, mate, here's what's happened, and I'm explaining what's happened. You know when you know someone's not really listening? Same as when you go to a barber's and you tell them what you want and they nod in before you tell them. They nod in before, you think it's all over. They know what they want to do, yeah? So it's one of those moments. So I'm telling them, I'm thinking he's not getting this. And I said, he said, yeah, he said, you just need to buy another ticket and then to Finsbury Park. I said, no, you don't get it. So I bought a ticket to King's Cross. Finsbury Park is shorter. I'm just my friend's keys. He said, leave the keys and lost and found. I thought, no, you don't understand. I said, no, I said, and, and, and I said, you don't get it, mate. So when I walked through the barrier, he said, you stop there. Right. I thought this was going to kick off. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, so, so I stopped. Uh, I said, um, I thought, this is you know, it's terrible. Some, some <laughs> railway man chasing the pastor down the station. <laughs> so I stopped. I said, yeah. I said well, I said, can, you, can you just, can I speak to someone, you know, a bit, that's going to actually you know, listen to me, someone higher up? You know? And he said, yeah, he's fine. He said, go back through. So I went back through. And then he clearly wasn't going to get anyone. And then suddenly there was this mix-up and the t- train right next to me suddenly was going back to Finsbury Park so I didn't have to go through the barriers. So I thought, blow this, so I just got on it. So I'm sat on it and I've got 101 reasons why it's fine but my conscience is troubling me. Now this is very important you understand this because I've got 101 reasons why I'm in the right. However, <laughs> the next day I'm about to preach on be subject to human authorities. So I'm on the train and the conviction's growing and my arguments are weakening. <laughs> uh, so I'll come up with this ridiculous plan. So when I get to Finsbury Park, I talk to someone who looks more reasonable, and I give him the whole story. He says, you're fine. Great. Walked off, conviction's growing. Yeah? Because the issue isn't actually about the ticket anymore. The issue is about my response to the authority. Do you understand? That's the issue. So the conviction's growing. So I'm waiting for the 29 bus. I'm getting smaller and smaller, and whiter and whiter. As it, I, you know, I can't do this. So I then cross over the road, go to the ticket machine, buy a ticket from Finsbury Park to King's Cross. Buy it, get out of the machine, put it in my pocket, and then go and get a 29 bus home. I had to do it. I had to do it. Okay? Why? Because my conscience was troubling me. And it's stupid, and I never used the ticket, and the guy said it was fine. Not the point. That is vital. You understand that. So we're all learning here. I'm not, I'm not coming from higher ground. These are things you learn, but you've got to listen to that voice. Yeah? And be those who respond when the Holy Spirit is convicting us and those who honour those in authority, even when they're unreasonable, even when they're not really listening to what we're saying, even when you just think, how on earth did you get into this position? Even when we're thinking that. You say, no, I'm going to honour you. Why? Remember last week? For the Lord's sake. And I'll be able to do that. How? I'll be mindful of God. And when I think, ah, this is terrible, I go back to the cross. Where the only perfect man to have ever lived willingly gave up his life for sinners like you and me. Yeah? 
Jesus Christ dying in our place so we could be forgiven? Wouldn't he let himself be punished by the Father for things he had never done any wrong for so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled as a free gift? Always go back to the cross because that's how we live, crucified lives. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, I want to pray you would help us in an anti-authoritarian society, one that hates authority, mistrusts authority. Help us to honour authority because we want to worship you. Help us, Lord, to be humble and not proud. Help us not to be argumentative. Help us not to always defend our corner. Help us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Help us to honour those that you've placed in positions above us because we honour you. Help us, Lord, to live very different lives so that those around us can understand that you've truly changed us from the inside out and that there's something in this Jesus stuff after all. I pray that our lives will be a testimony to your grace and to your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of the service, I would love to pray for those of you who...